As we turn now to the preaching of God's Word, if you'd like to read with me, I'll be uh, in Exodus chapter 12 again this morning. That's Exodus chapter 12. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Ah, Lord God, uh, we join with the words of the psalmist in asking that you would open our eyes that we would behold the wondrous things out of your law. We are sojourners on earth. Do not hide your commands from us. Lord, we ask that you would work this in us by your spirit. Open our eyes to see and our hearts to believe that we would follow and honor you as you deserve. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We'll take up Uh, This morning, a a good number of verses. This is Exodus chapter 12. I'll begin in verse 33 and read here to the end of the chapter. Exodus 12, beginning in verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians." And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out from Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves." The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, 
the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. This is the word of God. Now, what we've just read here is the moment of the Exodus, after which the English uh, title for the book is born. This is where Israel is now finally leaving Egypt. Pharaoh's heart, we know, had kept the people of Israel enslaved for many years. But the Lord is sovereign over even the king. As we hear in the Proverbs, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and the Lord turns it wherever he wills. So we've seen that leading up to this, that the Lord is channeling Pharaoh as he wills to let his people go out of Egypt. But the people are not quite out yet. We know, uh, just if you're familiar with the story, that there is still the event of the Red Sea ahead of them. We'll get to that when we come here. The Lord will bring them through those waters, but we'll wait. Uh, Now, we see at least that the wheels of the Exodus are in motion. The plagues are complete, and the people of Israel are on their way now into the promised land. And all of this is a truly massive undertaking. You might have noticed as we read through the number of people involved in this, where is it, verse 30, 37, that the assembly of the people of Israel, at least the men on foot, was 600,000, just the men on foot. And obviously it would be double or more than that, including all the women and children. Uh, So there's been some debate among scholars over the number of this, just because of the sheer size of it. That altogether this huge caravan of those who are leaving in the Exodus is roughly the population of the city of Houston, Texas, all leaving Egypt at once. That's huge. And, and, and geographically, it's hard to imagine how that even is even technically possible. And, and so those who debate this number, about 600,000, they're not doing so to say that the Bible is wrong. You know, oops, you know, Moses miscounted when he licked his pen and, you know, was looking around the numbers and, and got the number wrong. Uh, some say, there's some discussion about how to translate this Hebrew word, which here is translated thousand. There's some evidence that this Hebrew word may be rightly translated something closer to clan instead of thousand. So it's possible that there were 600 clans of men on foot, not including all the women and children. In that case, the total would be closer to tens of thousands of people, still a massive amount, somewhere closer to the size of Hannibal than Houston, but still a large number, closer to tens of thousands than than closer to, to millions. That may be the case. That's scripturally possible. It seems more plausible that it's closer to the size of Hannibal than to move the entire city of Houston. But I think Houston is what happened here. I think this translation is correct, that there were 600,000 men plus women and children. And I think that because there's numerous places in the book of Numbers where a census is taken and it's very close to 600,000 men. 
Um, this also, this huge number also fits with the very beginning of the book of Exodus, which now probably feels like forever ago. But back in chapter 1, verse 7, we hear this. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. That's some of the opening of the book. And the, the effect of this, these great numbers, is actually what made the people of Israel such a great threat to Pharaoh in the first place. But it's also, those great numbers is also the source of the Lord's blessing upon them. That their numbers were a gift to them. At any rate, the Lord is now bringing out, however many numbers they were, a great multitude. And we hear in the account that we've read here, it's, it's sort of a grab bag of things. We hear a lot of things that we've already heard. It's sort of a, a recap, I guess, of everything that's happened with a little bit of elaboration on it. So we hear how they've plundered the Egyptians. This is not pirate stuff. Uh, this is not looting, which is against the scriptures. Uh, they are asking people, the Egyptians, to give them, and the Egyptians willingly give them the gold, the silver, and the clothing. Uh, this is sort of a back wages for all the generations that they were never paid for their work. And they end up using these things, by the way, to build uh, the tabernacle. It's kind of the, the, the leg that they stand on in future generations. We also hear in this book some reminders about the unleavened bread. It even tells us these details about how they wrapped it up in bowls and their cloaks. We hear a discussion about the Passover with some description about it being a night of watching. There was sort of an eagerness that would, was supposed to happen in future years as they would eagerly see the work of the Lord and be reminded of what he'd done here. We've touched in various ways on all of these throughout our months. Today, I want to focus on an aspect of this text that we have not been able to address until now. And we find it, at least in part, in verse 38, if you read with me again. Here's what the verse says. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Okay? <laughs> but a mixed multitude. That's the line I want to latch on to here today. This means, this is not just touching on the size of the group, although multitude is very large. It is touching on the makeup of the group. Who is in the group? and that the group is mixed. What does that mean? Some translations uh, into English uh, translate this phrase that there was a rabble who left Egypt. Who says rabble anymore? I think it's kind of an interesting sounding uh, phrase. It sounds a little bit pejorative, a little negative sounding, and a tone that's not there in the Hebrew from it, so it's not quite the best word to use. But another translation uses the phrase, uh, spelling out the intent of this a little better, I think, that there was an ethnically diverse crowd. In other words, that some of the Egyptians came with the Israelites in the Exodus. That's interesting. In fact, the word that's translated here as mixed is used a whole bunch of times in the book of Leviticus in one chapter, in Leviticus chapter 13, and it refers to a certain type of clothes. I actually had to do some research on this because I don't really know how to do these things, but uh, it's a reference to the warp and the woof. 
Does anyone actually know what that is? I thought and might, a few, yes. So the warp and the uh, woof, I had to look it up. The weaves of the strands of cloth that go in two opposite directions. So the warp and the woof. And these two opposite directed strands are to be woven together into one cloth. That's what we see here in this woof, warp woof multitude that the ones who left Egypt were an interwoven mixed multitude that ethnic Jews and ethnic Egyptians were together in one. Hmm. Now, this might sound like a very beautiful picture of racial harmony. You know, it's like right out of Jesus Loves Me song, you know, the red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight kind of thing. And there certainly is a sort of beauty that comes with this. But I imagine that this was also very challenging in practice on both sides. It'd be challenging for the Israelites because they are now having to join with people who had been their masters for generations. People in a society who viewed them as workhorses, who saw their lives as literally less than their own. That would be hard for the Israelites. And likewise, I imagine that it would be hard for the Egyptians who went out with them too, that they are now joining with the people whose God this very night has just taken the lives of their own firstborn. A God who has laid waste to their society and community. So to join together on both sides, I'm sure, was not easy. It would be easier to just kind of retreat to your corners and carve out little separate but equal spaces. But it was necessary for them as they traveled to at least in some way to be a mixed or interwoven multitude. And the Lord would actually call them to lean into that tension and not run from it. We hear it a number of places in the Pentateuch. But just one of them is in Leviticus chapter 19. Let me find it. Verse 33, the Lord says this. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord. The thing that would interweave them together as a multitude was love. Now, this certainly has some pretty significant implications for our current issues around race, especially in relation to black-white tensions. And I think we need to address that. I know that uh, Black Lives Matter is a very sensitive topic in many places. I mean, just to hear the phrase makes many people kind of tense up. 
maybe have some immediate emotional or mental response to hearing Black Lives Matter. <laughs> Although as one writer pointed out, um, the words, those three words, Black Lives Matter as a concept at least, should not be controversial. You know, Black Lives Matter doesn't say, Black Lives Matter more than you, or Black Lives Matter instead of you. It's just Black Lives Matter. Why is there debate about that? <laughs> I recognize that there are some broader issues that make this very complex. Uh, we're not even going to try to unpack all of that here. Even if we could, there are some broader aspects of the Black Lives Matter movement that Christians should affirm. And there are other aspects that Christians should not affirm. These are important conversations to be having. But the principle underneath these racial issues still stands, which is to love him as yourself. That's the simple, hard call of the scripture. It's the call of Jesus, and it's the defining mark of the Christian that we love. We sometimes hear comments made about people of other races, you know, I have no problem with those people. They really are nice people. I've never had any trouble with those people. That's not what we're after. You know, can you imagine Jesus going around teaching, I just want you to have no problem with each other. What we're after is something bigger than that, better than that. We're after love. We're seeking love in these areas. And whatever anyone else does do or doesn't do, whether it's personally or on TV, that doesn't really matter. My question now is, do you, do you love your neighbor? Are you willing to sacrifice for your neighbor, or do you put your own desires first? Are you really willing to change, adapt for the sake of your neighbor, or are you asking them always to adapt to you? Do you seek compassion, even affection for your neighbor, or are you content to just tolerate them? And ha have you ever even asked what it's like to be a person of a different race, or have you just assumed you know and have never really listened and just talked over them? Even more than this, the call is more than just love, as high as that is. It's to love as yourself. In other words, to see them as part of yourself. To not be slicing them into nice, tidy groups of these are my people and those are your people, those people. It would become one interwoven cloth. That doesn't mean we get rid of all differences. We don't turn black and white into some gray hybrid. That's not the idea. Nor does it mean that there's no unique challenges or gifts even of various cultures and races. That's not the idea. But the, the warp and the woof of the thread, they're still unique in some way, but they crisscross each other. They interlap. They, they are woven together into one mixed weave. 
And this comes with some really hard challenges. As I continue to wrestle with this, I feel it in myself drawing my own sin to the surface. Some of my own selfishness, some of my own attitudes that are maybe not as holy as they ought to be. Seeing ways that I even need to be shaped by Jesus in these areas. We want this to be especially true of the Christian community. That the love of Jesus has made us neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, Israelite, Egyptian, American. That there's bigger, something bigger going on that we are to be seen as one in Jesus. It is tough to know what that looks like. (laughs) I can get the principle of love, but it's tough to know what the actual practice of racial unity would look like uh, in our community and even in our church. I don't really know to be honest, what that means. But I do know that I and we have some work to do. We have a ways to go in this area to really seek love across racial lines. And so we want the text to push on us in this area, that the sharp sword of God would really pierce our hearts in relation to these things. So if that's troubling to you, you know, before you come up to me right after the service to tell me all the list of the ways that Black Lives Matter is wrong, let me clarify now, just to be as clear as I can, all I am asking of us is that we consider how we love our neighbor. And if you have a problem with that, take it up with the spirit first before you take it up with me. That's all a bonus. Little side comment, long side comment, just to make a squirm. I hope that's helpful and and from the text and would draw love in us. In Exodus now, okay, those things still apply, but in Exodus here, we do see some discussions about racial components of that, how Egyptians and Jews of racial differences would be interconnected. But the main focus is not on the racial community, not on their skin, it's not on their ethnicity, although that matters very much. The main focus is on the faith community here. That they were a mixed multitude of mixed race, but of one faith. And this is instructive for us as a community of faith now. This matters very much for our current situation. Because you'll notice something very important about this mixed multitude that are of one faith. That this faith community is simultaneously closed and open. The community is simultaneously closed and open just in different ways. You can see it most clearly in the way they enacted their faith in the sharing of the Passover. That's that last set of verses there at the the bottom. So in one sense, the community of faith here that's leaving Exodus is, is closed. Look in verse 43. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. Well, that sounds rude. It seems, you know, a little divisive there. No, no foreigner can join in the Passover. That seems a little unloving and seems to contradict everything I've just said now about, about racial relations. But this meal was to be closed. 
In some sense, their community was to be closed. And Moses even expands on this more in the following verses, that the Passover was not for the foreigner, for the sojourner, for the hired worker, or really for anyone who was uncircumcised. In other words, that means that the community of faith, especially in regard to the Passover, but also all aspects of their faith, the community of faith was to be clearly defined is showing them who this meal is for. That meal is not for whoever happens to share a common space. So if a Jew had a visitor in their home who was not of their faith, they were to not eat of the Passover. Don't let them eat with you in this area. It was also not whoever happens to share a common direction oh, we're kind of going your same way too. Maybe we can partner along and we're kind of joined together in that sense. No, no, it's not to be joined in that way. It's also not just someone who shares a common goal. If you hire a worker and you're trying to build a building together, that's, uh, that's not necessarily joining it together in this same way. What defines them as a people, what, I, what makes their identity is that they share a common God. And if you have this as your God, you are part of the community. But if this is not your God, you shall not join with them, he says. Because you're not part of the people of God. This is a closed community. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that the Israelites are trying to keep people out. You know, we don't want you with us. That's not the intent. People are welcomed into the community with open arms, but only under certain conditions. Closed in one sense, but in another sense, the community is open. Look in verse 48. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he can come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land but no uncircumcised person shall eat it. So if you want to join in this community of faith, if you want to become a real servant of the Lord and be part of this whole thing, you can if all your males are circumcised. And the reason for that is because the people of God are not primarily built on a particular ethnicity. They're built on the covenants of God. That if you remember way back in Genesis, if you're familiar with this, that God in days long hundreds of years prior in the days of Abraham made promises, covenant promises to Abraham that he would bless him and make him a great nation. And the sign, the mark of that covenant promise from God uh, was circumcision. That's how we, it was the mark of the membership in the covenant community. So Abraham was to circumcise himself, yikes, and uh, circumcise all his kids, at least the boys, and those who would be born generations after. And it says he was to circumcise the foreigners or the slaves, different kind of slaves than we see here, but servants, house servants who were with him. Those who were foreigners, but who were part of his house. Different ethnicity, but under the same covenant because they then have the sign of the covenant upon them. That is now true still in the days of Moses. 
there's this covenant sign of circumcision. And if you were to be in the community, that's the people of Israel, but also Egyptians who want to join are able to do so too if they are circumcised. So this open and closed sense of the community then to join in the community of the people of God is to be taken very seriously. If the gateway in is you have to be circumcised, hmm, that's going to keep out the tourist who's just there to kind of check things out. It's going to keep out the ones who are maybe there temporarily, just want to go with you a little ways and then I'm out. It's going to keep out those who are there for a trial period. You got to choose. You in or you out. So this circumcision then was not only painful but permanent. You can't undo your circumcision. So someone who's an outsider who wants to come into the community then before they even enter has to really consider if this is what they want before they commit. Similar to entering into a marriage. Is this really what I want before I commit in covenant? Not just because the circumcision would be painful for the men, ouch, but also because spiritual components come with this. That the covenant community receive the covenant blessings of the Lord. They're also, if they break the covenant, under the covenant curses of God. Just as a side note, there's an incident later when they're traveling in the wilderness uh, in this mixed multitude where there's a man who blasphemes the name of the Lord. We don't know exactly what he did or how that played out, but something very serious. And at issue was this particular man, his mom was an Israelite, and his dad was Egyptian. So he's one of this mixed multitude even within himself. And there was a question about how does the law of God apply in this man's case? And in the end, they said, he is a real part of the covenant community. He's got the sign of the covenant upon him, and he has broken this covenant, and there's a penalty a penalty, a serious one to be paid. We see it at the end of this text in verse 49. There shall be one law for the native and for the sojourner who sojourns among you. Whew, I almost need to take a breath from all of that. I know that got really technical in there. If I lost you, come back. Because now we have to ask the question, what does this mean for the church, even for our church now? Circumcision doesn't quite work the same way. We don't have the same sort of covenant mark. We have baptism. That's the New Testament version of that, but uh, that's an issue for another time. But we can address this, that the mixed multitude of the church has a similar sort of dynamic, that we are simultaneously open and closed there is a sense in which the church is both open and closed as a community. And we really need to remember both so that we don't overemphasize one at the expense of the other, as we, especially as we share faith with other people outside of the community. So if we become too open as a community, too eager to share about the love and the mercy of Jesus, come on, Jesus is great, come on in, some people end up feeling like that's a bait and switch. It seemed really great at the beginning, but it ends up not being what I signed up for. You know, at the beginning, it's just like, you just got to, like, love Jesus. 
and, and, and then, you know, the church, there's lots of love, and the people are really nice. They hug me when COVID's not around, and, and they're very supportive, and it's kind of fun sometimes, and they help me raise my kids, and I feel very encouraged by that, and that's really great. But then eventually, if we really love Jesus, Jesus begins to confront our other loves. Jesus begins to push on our sin and the idols that we cherish and we hold close. He begins to really press on those, and it's uh, less fun. And so we really need to count the cost of following Jesus. That the church would say, yes, Jesus is full, abounding even with love and mercy and also holiness. And this is what holiness is going to look like. This is what it's going to look like as Jesus calls you to take up your cross and follow him out of love. It's going to sting sometimes. It's going to burn to try to put to death by his spirit the sin that's within us. And if we are not willing to be engaged, if we're not honest with people about that, that this is part of what it means to be a Christian, to be shaped in the image of Jesus, maybe that person who just wants Jesus but not to be shaped by him, maybe that person doesn't love Jesus as much as they think. So we have to be careful not to be too open without any guards at all, that we're not willy-nilly about faith. At the same time, we also do not want to be too closed. We are not too closed. There is still space within the church to challenge, to think, to wrestle with questions that we might have within the community. Those are good things. We also don't want to set up artificial barriers to faith. You know, these sort of traditions you have to do, or these are sort of bars that you have to jump over, or you have to be, you know, this holy to ride this ride. Jesus came to save sinners, the biggest sinners. Jesus came for tax collectors and prostitutes and hypocrites and demon-possessed people. He came for liars and racists and cheats and gay and straight and black and white people caught up in drugs, people caught up in sexual addictions, people caught up in alcohol addictions. He came for the lame, for the poor, for the rich, for the tired, for the worn. He came for it all, for all sinners. And the criteria that Jesus puts then upon the community is not get your act together before you come in. It is, put your faith in me. That's open. Come, he says, put your faith in me, and if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will. That makes you part of the people of God if you're a person of faith. What Jesus is doing is creating a kingdom of a mixed multitude that is far bigger than what we see in Exodus. This is a kingdom much bigger than the city of Houston. We catch a glimpse, I'll close with this, we catch a glimpse of what this looks like kind of on the other side of the Red Sea, so to speak, 
in the very last pages of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, chapter 7. Let me read just a couple of verses. Verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you help us to see in this event of the Exodus what is true much broader for all of your people? Would you see the great gifts that you freely give to all who come to you? Thank you for this. Would you stir in us a particular faith in you that leads us to obedience, that honors your name, that brings praise to you and fosters this sort of mixed multitude that you've intended? Help us uh, to honor you in this way, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.